0: Paramedic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. My name is Jordan Anderson, Assistant Chief of Clinical at the Hospital District, today talking to Medical Director Dr. Patrick and we have Andy Adams assisting us on the board, as always. Today, we're going to talk about hyperoxemia. This was a topic that we brought up because of fire departments and oxygen, and we often have kind of a debate whether we put the non-rebreather on or put a cannula on or take them off, and I want to make sure we have a smooth transition there. And so, Dr. Patrick did some investigation and uh, some research and found a lot of interesting things that we think would be relevant and productive if the uh, advanced provider knew as well. So we
1: developed a podcast on hyperoxemia. And uh, with that, why don't you take it away, Dr. Patrick? So I think it's important to start by remembering that emergency providers, whether we're paramedics, firemen and women, emergency nurses, emergency docs, we're all the most entrenched absolute creatures of habit. Everything we do is based on pattern recognition and we oftentimes rely on our experiences much or more than our classroom training. And as we age, I included myself in there as someone who's aged and some of the things that I, would, I was taught just you know 15 years ago have, have aged out of practice. The literature evolves and this can create landmines. One of those areas of change is, is in the use of prophylactic oxygen or therapeutic oxygen. Uh, the therapeutic nasal cannula was something that was ubiquitous 15, 20 years ago when I started medical training. There was no thought that putting a nasal cannula or a non rebreather on was a bad thing. So, let's, from a history standpoint, how did, you know, how did those things start? And I think, from thinking back to my med student days, one of the first thing we learned with chest pain patients was Mona. Morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, and aspirin. And when you think about Mona, it's pretty, pretty funny to think that morphine probably increases mortality. Oxygen probably, potentially increases mortality if not infarct size. Nitrates, we still use them. No real change in mortality. But that A though, doctor, got, that got aspirin. Aspirin's still good. We're still, we're still, we're not knocking aspirin at all. But this was that was a mantra when I learned, you know, ACLS the first time. What was your uh, acronym?
0: Right, right. so as a paramedic on the ambulance, we used VOMIT, right, on these calls that we just didn't know what else to do. We we VOMIT. So what do you do on this call? VOMIT, and it's vitals, oxygen, monitor, IV, and transport. So if, if you didn't
1: know what else to do or the patient didn't need anything, you gave them a therapeutic cannula. Therapeutic cannula was, it was no one, the concept of that being harmful, just, you know, this was 20 years ago, uh, wasn't, wasn't really there. And if you think about from a common sense, sense standpoint, You know, you've got a myocardial infarction, infarct implying that there's less oxygen supply. So it just makes sense, right, that if we give the patient oxygen, you're going to help the infarct size. And we'll talk more about why maybe that's not the case. Think about a stroke. What's a stroke? It's It's a brain infarct, right? Time. Time is tissue, time is neurons, all these things that we learn about, rapid transport, appropriate stroke destination in our stroke patients. If this MCA is clotted and they're not getting blood flow and they're not getting oxygenation, well, then let's put more oxygen on their nose or on their face. It makes common sense, right? We'll talk a little, a little bit about why I'm moving forward why that's not the case. Um, but when I say that was common practice, you know, 18, 20 years ago, and I'm thinking of my entry into med school around 99, 2000, looking back at the the literature a little bit in the history of this, this really isn't all that brand new. And this is just proof that when something is ingrained and chiseled in that stone, that sort of Mona, you know, mantra, vomit mantra, it takes time for those things to be, sort of be removed from our mindset. Um, AHA Rex in 2000 contained the statement, no supplemental oxygen if SAS greater than 90%. And I know that today we still see cardiac patients in pre-hospital setting, in the ED setting, in the hospital setting, that first thing that they get is the therapeutic cannula. So old habits really do die hard. And we also love to t- to treat and correct numbers. Again, we deal with a lot of subjectivity. And when we see a SAT of 92, well, I can fix that. I can make it a hundred, right? We don't always get to fix things, concrete things. And so I think sometimes that act of giving that Oxygen to make that 90 to 100 gives us a feeling of satisfaction. And I think that's, that's human nature, right? But let's take some of these lessons and some of the, the literature that we, we know are out there and let's try to be a little more analytical and think about why that may not always, even though it's human nature, why it may not be the best case. But before we get into the literature, let's talk a little bit about the basics, oxygenation and perfusion and how we assess it. So why do we need oxygen? First off, we need oxygen basically to supply fuel to the tissue, right? Its physiologic purpose is to, is to help us make ATP, to give us, to give us energy. Uh, 21% oxygen in room air. So when we're breathing regular room air, it's 21%. We can augment that with nasal cannula by the leader, non-rebreather, by percentage, CPAP, BiPAP, mechanical ventilation, all ways that we, we augment a patient's oxygenation. How do we assess oxygenation, Jordan? What are some of the ways, ways that, just basic? So, so respiratory rate, color of the skin, nail beds, lip color. So looking for things like cyanosis, to Right, if a patient is is hypoxic, oftentimes their respiratory drive is going to increase, so they're going to they're going to uh, breathe more quickly. Again, you can look at cyanosis, different spots like Jordan mentioned, lips, nail beds. So if a patient walks up to you and they have pink lips, pink nail beds, a respiratory rate of fourteen, and they're speaking, what are the odds they're hypoxic?
0: Not very likely.
1: Not very likely, right? So we can get a pretty good assessment of oxygenation. What's the what's the one thing we haven't talked about? in oxygen assessment so far, and we're already telling you that if you're walking, talking with a normal respiratory rate and normal skin color, what have we, we left out?
0: Yeah, I was kind of laughing. I didn't give you the probably the first thing I do on, on most patients is the SpO2 sensor.
1: Right. So point there is that we can do a really good job of oxygen assessment, pretty good, without O2 sats. All right So if someone doesn't look hypoxic, most of the time they're not. And in those cases, what we're really pretty darn sure about is they don't need supplemental oxygen. And again, we're not talking about granular details here. We want to talk about when do we put oxygen on folks. And if someone has a normal skin exam, respiratory rate, mentation, they're probably not going to need oxygen. The second thing when we talk about oxygen basics is to, one of the big groups we're going to hit on a couple more times during the talk is our COPD emphysema patients. I think it's important to remember that those folks, due to their chronic lung damage from their obstructive pulmonary disease, the OPD, the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they oftentimes run baseline hypoxic and now relatively hypoxic. If the COPD patient has SATS in the sixties and they're blue and they're breathing forty times a minute, then by all means correct their oxygenation and manage their airway and treat their bronchoconstriction and their inflammation as as we always do. But they oftentimes run in the, you know, in the eighty-eight to ninety-two range. And we'll talk a little little bit more about why augmenting them while It's sort of the example of the patient that, well, they're eight, they're 90. I want to make them 98. why that can be harmful.
0: So if we do treat all these patients with oxygen, how can that over oxygen application actually be harmful to patients?
1: Well, there's several theories. I think some of these are, it's probably a situation where they're all correct in, in some way and contribute in some unknown percentage. Some of the more proven examples are number one, hyperoxemia causes coronary vasoconstriction. So when we think about an MI, the beginning example, well, they've got a clot in their RCA, and that, you know, that area does not have blood flow. Well, let's give them more oxygen to get more blood flow to that the right side of the heart. Well, what you actually do is you pump their their oxygen up. They go from a PO2 of say 120 to 420, and their left main and their circ constrict. So instead of having you know, then and then they lose those valuable collaterals that we, we talk about all the time. If the patient loses the RCA, then potentially they get some collateral flow from the circumflex or from the left main. And if those are being constricted down by the nasal cannula or non-rebreather you're giving them, that's going gonna, gonna to get you in trouble. And there have actually been cath lab studies that have shown if you put a patient on a five-minute non-rebreather, you get a 30% decrease in coronary flow. So... It's not a theory. This is, this is real and has been shown. So when we think about that, think about that chest pain patient, remember, counterintuitive, that oxygen is not going to get past that RCA lesion. That thing needs to be opened. The platelets need to be made slippery with our aspirin. We need to get to revascularization. We need to get to our cardiac center as quickly as possible. But giving them more oxygen is going to decrease their coronary flow, not increase the coronary availability of oxygen. Uh, so coronary vasoconstriction is one, one thought. The second is free radical creation. Um, don't want to get too much into a chemistry lesson, but free radicals are bad. They increase ox- oxidative stress and potentially cause cellular DNA damage. Um, we don't want that. And so too much oxygen increases that process. I'll leave that one at that. Thirdly, hyperoxygen or hyperoxemia is also thought to be pro-inflammatory. So it increases our release of inflammatory mediators. So whether we've got a stroke or sepsis or a myocardial infarction, the last thing we want is additive inflammation. So uh, in some combination, coronary vasoconstriction, free radical creation, uh, pro-inflammation, cascades, these these are some of the reasons why that hyperoxemia can be harmful.
0: No one wants to get too academic in in these kind of discussions, but that's kind of the root of what we're doing. If we only followed our gut, we'd give oxygen to everyone, right? So recently there was a publication in the Lancet
1: in 2018. So there's, I'm going to run through a couple publications here, actually, Jordan, and I think your point is exactly right. And I don't know that I could say it better and I didn't outline it. And that's good. I mm-hmm. like the way I like that thought. And that is that if we went with our gut, we would give all these people oxygen. I think our gut sense is wrong here. And I think the evidence is accumulating. And I think that's why it's important to to talk about where where this comes from because this is a sea change for a lot of providers. The IOTA study came out in 2018. Again, don't want to get too too nerdy here, but Lancet is one of the most respected, if not the most respected, uh, medical journals out there. So this is not in um, you know this is not in a throwaway uh, a throwaway journal. This was this is vetted and peer reviewed and very well respect very well respected. And what they did was. They did a study called a meta-analysis, and that is basically a gathering of information from multiple other studies, and they looked at MI patients, stroke patients, sepsis patients, trauma patients, critical illness patients. So they looked at a wide variation uh, patient population, and they compared patients who had liberal amounts of oxygen given, or lots of oxygen given, and patients who were treated conservatively with supplemental oxygen. And they found that the patients that got liberal oxygen had increased mortality and again if you want to dig into the to the details there google the iota study Um, i'm not going to go go there today their main point or thought from the study was that there's no need to push oxygenation past 94 to 96 percent, and that depending on your endpoint the number needed to harm is between 100 and 130 patients So we've talked a little about number needed to treat and number needed to harm in the podcast before, but the bottom line is if we put a hundred patients on supplemental aggressive oxygen in all of these, you know, common illness categories that we have, we're going to have a bad outcome in one in a hundred. It seems like, ah, one in a hundred, that's no big deal. But if you think about the number of people we put oxygen on, that's a pretty big deal. So that's, that's the IOTA study basics. Um, if you want to dial it back and look at specific disease processes, there have been studies that have looked at hyperoxia and stroke. Last, One of the last major ones was uh, in JAMA in 2017. Again, JAMA being well-respected, well-vetted, peer-reviewed. They looked at oxygen at 2 to 3 liters in stroke patients. So we're not even talking about a non-rebreather. We're talking about the therapeutic nasal cannula. And the patients that got oxygen had no change in three-month outcome and no change in early or larger stroke subgroups. So it didn't help. What about in cardiac arrest and myocardial infarction? You know, where do we come up with this information? The two major studies there are AVOID and DETOX. I wish I had a study that had a a cool name. AVOID looked at infarct size in STEMI patients and uh, DETOX looked at suspected MI patients. So a little bit less sick patients But what were the bottom lines from these studies? Less recurrent MI and arrhythmia and smaller infarct in conservatively treated patients with oxygen. So in other words, they had less recurrent MI, less arrhythmia when they got less oxygen. Their infarct size was smaller. Again, this seems so counterintuitive, but if you go back to 30% decrease in coronary flow with five minutes on the non-rebreather, that makes sense, right? Because if you're gonna increase coronary constriction, you're going to increase irritation and arrhythmia. You're going to increase infarct size. Hyperoxia and critical illness, another, again, what about what about ICU patients? I mean, don't we need to our pneumonia patients, don't they, don't they need extra oxygen when they're critically ill? And there was a GEMA study in 2016 that looked at this directly. They had to stop the study early because the patients that got the liberal or the increased oxygen, we're doing so much worse. So their goal was to shoot for a O2 sat of 94 to 97% with a PaO2 around 100. But again, anytime a study stopped early, that's because the patients are doing worse than expected. And the answer is more obvious than the, than the study investigators thought. Right.
0: They can't keep giving high oxygen to those patients because they
1: know they're doing harm at that point. Yep. So Finish up with evidence in COPD. And I think COPD is probably the patients that we're all the most guilty of. Yeah, but their SATs are 92 and I want to fix it because we still get it every day. You know, hey, doc, the the Weezer in, in bed too. SATs 91, I put two liters on. No, don't. And this, this data is actually even older. It's from the British Medical Journal in, in 2010. And again, we'll include the links in the show notes if you want to take a look. But this was actually a pre-hospital study and pre-hospital COPD patients, more aggressive oxygen administration, increased their mortality. So, you know, we looked at a meta-analysis with all the sick patients that we take care of, oxygen's gonna harm. We looked at stroke, oxygen doesn't help. MI, cardiac arrest, oxygen's gonna make your infarct larger. It's gonna increase your risk of a recurrent MI. In general critical illness, they had to stop the study early Due to bad outcomes, and then in COPD, in pre-hospital patients, aggressive oxygen administration increased mortality. So really, that's 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 all those patients that we've been slapping on the therapeutic nasal cannula for for decades. So it's good evidence there. As, as boring as that is to go through, um, it's the it's becoming the the pile of of uh, papers is becoming taller and taller and taller. Um, if we can get away from uh, academics a reference for a minute, the hypoxic
0: drive, you're talking about COPD. That's uh, hypoxic drives in my paramedic book. Uh, I've you know done my own Google searches to figure if that's a real thing or not and, and how to provide oxygen to those COPD patients. I know you've done some research to maybe give us a, a final answer on that today. If
1: One thing I think is entirely clear after going through some of this and, and being out practicing almost 20 years now from the time I started medical school and, and learning the clinical book side is that, there's never a final answer there's Ugh. an there's an accepted answer for today oh i had my pin ready i yeah, was i was yeah, going to memorize it today you know, so but here the current thought is this i let's go back to the the classic patient and uh, i'll present the patient to you jordan and you tell me what's going to happen so we've got a 77 year old male smoked his entire life that uh, has a history of emphysema shortness of breath for 3 days and you arrive to find a patient with an o2 sat of of 90, wheezing, classic COPD exacerbation. What happens when you put oxygen on the patient? Well, the SpO2 is going to go up, put him on albuterol too, and hopefully help with the wheezing, right? But then you look over, and he's slumped over, and his respiratory rate's now eight. What has happened? Well, I would argue what, what I was taught, I guess
0: the same about 20 years ago, is hypoxic drive, right? You gave him so much oxygen. Oxygen is what's, his hypoxia is what's making his respiratory drive um, kick in. And so if you give him too much oxygen, he no longer has a, a reason to take a dip breath.
1: That analogy in and of itself makes sense.
0: My entire answer was in quotations,
1: by the way. Yes. I, there were there were air quotes here. This is a podcast, not a visual, but Jordan air quoted all of that. The, the best thought today is that's probably not the case. The case is probably more that the CO2 goes up after oxygen administration because of ventilation, perfusion, mismatch, and not because of loss of uh, hypoxic drive. Again, it doesn't really change, it shouldn't really change our practice. I think it's just probably a a term and a concept that's, that's out of date. And in the end, the other part that makes it even more irrelevant is if the patient's oxygen saturation is 90%, do they need oxygen? And the answer to that question is probably no. So regardless of how it occurs, whether it's ventilation, perfusion, mismatch, or loss of hypoxic drive, if their stats are 90, 91, 92, they probably don't need oxygen, and evidence supports that.
0: So we've kind of said a couple numbers. 92 is is acceptable in the COPD patients. Uh, the AHA, AHA said greater than 90. We talk about different numbers. What, what What's the right number? I guess just if you had to give an answer in your thoughts, when, when do you give oxygen to these patients?
1: And this makes us pretty wimpy here now because I've talked about 90 from the AHA recs. I've talked about you know some lower numbers there. At MCHD, that's our primary audience here with the podcast, uh, we want to try to make numbers as coherent and cohesive as we can uh, across the board. In other words, we don't want to have jumbled numbers across different protocols. So I think a good way to remember it is 94 is going to be our number of choice. Um, That's our number for hard stop in DSI. I think it should be our number for supplemental oxygen administration in general. So if a patient has a SAT of 94, there's no need to fix it. okay. And if a patient has a SAT of 92 and they are in a COPD exacerbation, I'm not telling you not to use oxygen, but I think my approach would first be to use our other treatments. In other words, supplemental oxygen is just one of our tools in the toolkit, right? Just like Jordan mentioned for our COPD patient, we use bronchodilators and we use steroids and we use non-invasive, non-invasive if, if, if we feel like the patient's sick enough. If you can use all three of those things and not augment the oxygen and increase your sats, that's going to be a safer and a better option. So I think that's the real take-home point for today is to to make sure that we're using it only in cases where our other therapies, you know, rather than going to it first, going to to it uh, fourth. I think there's a couple other things to think about, too, when we think about oxygen supplementation, and that is, number one, cost. Think about all the tubings and the mass that we use. I think we have to be mindful of of the cost. And if a, if a, treatment has been shown to not help or potentially make things worse, uh, those not, those two, tu- the tubing bags and the non-rebreather bags, as I know, you know, from purchasing these things for years, it's not, it adds up over time in, in, yeah. a, in a large service. It's neat to see,
0: but over the course of the years of me buying these things, like the use of non-rebreathers and the use of cannulas it has dramatically decreased. Now, capno cannulas has dramatically increased while we're all educated on CO2 and, and watching those waveforms, so we're certainly using a lot more of those. Um, but as a service, we've, we've greatly decreased the amount of oxygen we've been providing over, say, the last five years. Yeah,
1: and I think this, this applies to, you know, first responder groups out there. Um, you know, we're all, everybody's trying to, to spend their, their tax dollars and their community's uh, dollars wisely. And if we can continue to educate on, you know, unnecessary oxygen supplementation, I think it's only going to save us some cash. Secondly, ever had an oxygen can you placed on you at six liters or even two liters, it's not terribly comfortable. So from a patient comfort standpoint, I think that uh, any patient, if they were told, hey, you can either have this or not, any, everybody's going to, you know, most are going to choose no. I think we do get the patient every now and then who thinks the oxygen is going to be uh, the savior for them. And I think that's an important time for us to be an educator and to be clinicians and to explain to them, yeah, you're... Oxygen saturation is 99%, can't get any better. And in fact, if we try to make you better, it's going to make you worse. And uh, you don't have to quote JAMA or Lancet or um, fancy trial names to them, but we have to just be confident in our statement and, and let them know that yes, 20, 25 years ago, we would have done that. But now we know that it can cause your, your blood vessels to constrict and actually decrease your overall oxygenation, and that it's not a good thing, you know, and put it in ways that, that our patients can understand.
0: We've probably bashed on oxygen enough. Do you want to tell the other side of the story? Who are the patients that really need oxygen? When's oxygen really important? Let's let's give some positive.
1: So yeah, so it's it's still oxygen, and we still have tanks right. on it's all still our, on the trucks, still on the trucks, still on the uh, still in the bags, still on our, our stretchers and our, our hospital beds. We talked a second ago about that 94 number, and that 94 sort of or 94 is going to be our number for, for MCHD for oxygen supplementation. Mm-hmm. Other services out there, if you have different guidelines, again, follow your protocols. Uh, But we think the 94 is an important number because it's also the number that we use as our pre-oxygenation nitrogen washout guideline uh, with our delayed sequence intubation procedure. So in other words, we don't give paralytics if the patient's oxygen saturation is not above 94% for three minutes. So that's really going to be our number one time where we're really watching that that number. And we're trying to get that number up above 94 uh, with all our might. And that's going to involve apneic oxygenation and rule of 15s that we've talked about in other podcasts, peep of 15, 15 liters, head of bed, 15 degrees. And again, uh, apneic oxygenation. So that's nasopharyngeal airway, oropharyngeal airway, all those ways that we can uh, try to increase and maximize the amount of uh, nitrogen washout, preoxygenation when we're preparing to, to paralyze and intubate a patient. I think the second one is much less common, um, but it's one that we uh, do see, not, uh, not often, but probably a, a couple, I think, every time uh, the winter rolls around, and that's carbon monoxide exposure. Temperatures drop, patients uh, working, or patients get ca- we get called for a patient at a local warehouse or a storage unit and they're running a forklift, and they don't want to pay the heating bill, so they shut the door, and then patients have headache, vague, flu-like symptoms, and it's a situation of carbon monoxide exposure. Also happens when folks are running uh, kerosene heaters in small spaces, uh, oftentimes in mobile homes or trailers where it's more enclosed. Um, What happens when patients have uh, overdose or toxicity from carbon monoxide? Uh, Carbon monoxide, uh, chemical symbol CO, so it's one carbon, one oxygen versus carbon dioxide, CO2. So I get mono and, and di. I can do that. That's, that's within my in my range of capabilities. But the important part to know is that carbon monoxide binds hemoglobin with a lot more affinity, 200 times more than, than oxygen. At 100% non-rebreather, the half-life of carboxyhemoglobin or the carbon monoxide combined with hemoglobin decreases from four hours to one hour. So in patients where we get folks out of a house fire, headache and, a, and a chest pain in a warehouse with the door shut and forklifts running where we suspect carbon monoxide poisoning, I think it's fine preemptively to put those patients on 100% non-rebreather. That higher oxygen concentration is going to decrease uh, the half-life of the carboxyhemoglobin. Again, going to cut it in, you know, from four to one hour. Uh, that's, that's pretty important. And I think the third one that we think about in the hospital is pneumothorax, pneumomediastinum. These are patients that we still treat with hyperoxemia. Um, When someone has a, not talking about tension here, we're talking about spontaneous pneumo, spontaneous pneumomediastinum, asthma patients, C.O.B.D. patients. The thought is, is that increasing the oxygen in these folks with nitrogen, increased nitrogen washout, increases the gradient to drive out the pneumothorax and increase the rate of, of healing. No evidence that works, but it's still very common practice, probably a prime candidate for more myth busting. But again, don't want to totally slam oxygen and make it sound like it. it's never helpful. We really need it in our pre-oxygenation for intubation, also in our carbon monoxide patients. So let's hit some take-home points. Jordan, you want to hit a few of these and we'll wrap it up. Do you think we should take one second to, we've said nitrogen washout. Should we
0: explain what that is in this, this podcast or the setting? So just very, very simply, the atmosphere is mostly nitrogen. And so when you breathe in, your lungs are full of mostly nitrogen. And so before DSI, we like to do a nitrogen washout during our oxygenation period to where if they're on hundred percent oxygen, eventually that nitrogen slowly gets replaced with oxygen. And uh, we think after about the three minute mark that most of that nitrogen has been replaced with so either oxygen or the CO2, the patient's been is blowing off, right? Yeah. So
1: for our first responders listening out there, if you assume that 21% of our atmosphere is oxygen, most of the rest is nitrogen. There are a few other inert smaller percentages down there, but it's about 80-20. And so our lungs are about 80-20. But when we want to intubate a patient, we want our lungs to be 100 so that the length of time that we have to intubate and to visualize after we paralyze and make the patient not breathe, we want to make that time as long as possible. So our lungs are not breathing anymore. They're paralyzed. The only oxygen they're going to get is what's already in the alveoli or the lung spaces. So we want to wash the nitrogen, that 80% out, and replace it with 100% O2. So that's, that's the concept. Good good, good spot to, uh, to uh, move into our closing. That's one of the times that, that you, you
0: wanna flood them with oxygen. Yep. But you know, going on the take-home points, other cases, too much oxygen can be
1: harmful in, in many of our patients. You named cardiac, you named stroke, you named COPD. Yep, and I think right on down the line, you, you think of a critically ill patient and there's a paper out there that says oxygen either doesn't help or hurts. I think it's, 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 the evidence is clear. We save money, we save time, we save patient irritation by leaving the cannula in the bag for normoxic patients.
0: Right, so, so stop the in-stone the practice of just placing a cannula on everyone. It just, it just doesn't benefit.
1: Yep, now that being said, if patients are critically ill and they're critically hypoxic and they're blue and they're tachypneic and they're, their lips are cyanotic and they're altered, all those things that we talked about in our initial exam for, for oxygenation, by all means, control their airway, supraglottic, bag valve mask, endotracheal intubation, supplemental oxygen. Oxygen is vital for for our our body's function, for our cerebral function, for our energy supply. So, we're we're talking about not the critically ill patients, but the ones that are normal and normally functioning and normally oxygenating. They are going to do worse with oxygen. The patients who have SATS of 50 and who are blue, they need the non-rebreather. They need the SGA. They need the endotracheal tube. Um, we talked a little bit. Uh, we just finished a discussion about pre-oxygenation and nitrogen washout. Again, we're buying time there. That oxygenation in that, stamp, or that situation is totally worth it. And I think on that, we'll wrap it up. Please email us with any questions. I know this is not the way a lot of us were taught. So if you want more information on some of the the detail stuff that we hit we'll have it in the podcast show notes as always thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you all again soon